Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Patrick Hennessy is not yet 30, but he's already seen quite a bit of life and death that most of us wouldn't particularly want to. He served as a guards officer in the Balkans, in Africa, and the Falkland Islands, but most of his book, The Junior Officers Reading Club, is about his time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, the title provides the first clue that this is not the standard military memoir. It's subtitled Killing Time and Fighting Wars, which you could take as a reference to the fact that this form of touring is a little bit like rock and roll touring, long periods of hanging around, interrupted in this case by terrifying action. So, Patrick, why is it so called? Let's start with that. Um, the name really comes from this club that me and my mates founded in Iraq when, as you say, we, we were bored, these long periods of inaction. And we were all on different jobs. Some of us were out kind of patrolling around the streets of Basra. Some of us were looking after uh, detainees. Some of us were guarding camp. And it's very lonely. It's strange. You're, you're living in a tent with 12 other guys. But, so there's no personal space. But you are also kind of alone. Again, I, I imagine similar to kind of being on tour. Um, and maybe once every three days, we'd find an hour or two hours where our downtime would coincide. And so we'd all just sit around, strip off, boxer shorts, sun loungers, get, get a bit of a tan. You might as well come back from Iraq with a tan, if nothing else. Um, and we'd, we'd read books, and, and you can't take that many books, so we'd swap books afterwards. And I was just really interested by what books we were reading and what we weren't, what our topics of discussion were. And we had, again, in, in the book, it's, it's not a, a book reference as such, but I found during my stint in the um, detention centre, effectively being a prison warder, um, our escapism was sitting down and watching episodes of the OC DVD box set on a laptop. And this is a wonderful contrast between being in you know, what was essentially the armpit of the world at the time and watching uh, you know, Misha Barton on, uh, on the OC. Fantastic. Let's talk about the reading. What, what did you read? Well, you, you read a kind of a, a, a diet that appears to be partly nuts and FHM and partly heavy literature. Yeah. What was the heavy literature? I mean, I, I had uh, certain books that I'd taken out with me um, kind of partly in the sort of indulgent frame of mind. What's the book you want to be reading if it's your last book? Uh, and I love 
Trist from Shandy by Lawrence Stern. I took that out with me and I found it was brilliantly appropriate for Iraq because it's so muddled and so confusing and, and so darkly comic. Um, in Afghanistan the next year, I actually had sent to me uh, Anne Rand, um, which is, again, a million miles away from that sort of thing, but fantastic and such, such a powerful writer. Um, other friends had more... Um, war-focused stuff and Michael Hare's Dispatches, which is still, for me, the kind of standout classic of war writing. That was very popular. And I was intrigued by the people who would turn to books about war to read while they're at war, or people who go for pure escapism. And the other thing I always had with me, which I loved, was Alice in Wonderland, because it was so far away. And yet, actually, the world of expeditionary warfare, be it in Iraq, be it in Afghanistan, has something of that through-the-looking-glass quality. It's kind of topsy-turvy. It's slightly different. Um, so it was kind of appropriate. And yet, at the same time, there were these regular uh, deliveries of knots and FHM and Maxim and so forth. Yeah. And very you, popular with, with officers and men. I, absolutely. I mean, once you've spent 60 days living out of the back of a Land Rover, rank distinctions are almost meaningless. And in the sort of patrol bases out in Afghanistan where um, you'd be spending 60, 70 day shifts without resupplies, eating food out of a compo box, you would know every single page of the Nuts and Zoo magazines that were sent out. And the fresh delivery of mags and of papers was absolutely priceless. You know, that was the most exciting thing that would happen if there was a helicopter drop down the line and a lorry would come forward and you'd get a two-week-old copy of a Sunday paper with a few magazines and then obviously Nuts and Zoo, um, that would just be amazing. And I have these lovely photos in, in, in my sort of album now of all the shots of our downtime and the background of all these dusty Afghan compound walls are all posters pulled out of FHM and Nuts and Zoo. So you'll get kind of three Afghans sitting there cleaning their weapons with Lucy Pinder's legs in the background. It's just extraordinary. So you don't have to be alive to cultural sensitivities like that? We started off terrified about the cultural sensitivities and then about two weeks into our seven-month tour, um, a couple of the Afghans were refusing to soldier and they were having a real soul con and, and we didn't know what we offered them, you know, American rations, which they liked, that usually cheered them up. We were worried that some of them had been smoking, quite a lot of them smoked a lot of marijuana and some of them were, were, were doing heroin, so we sort of, we looked down that route and actually the reason why they were sulking was because the, one of their officers had taken away the Nuts and Zoo magazines that unbeknownst to us they'd been stealing from us. So as soon as we'd set up a system whereby they would also get the magazines, they were happy as Larry. Um, and I've also never seen um, a group of soldiers so transfixed. We had to transport some of them uh, from Kabul down to the south. Uh, and rather like herding cats, 400 guys, most of them had never been on an aeroplane before. And they were in the waiting lounge at Kandahar, and word got out that they were being sent to Helmand, which obviously none of them wanted to do. The few of them that had a bit of money were trying to bribe the postings clerk. That's not where we want to be sent. It was, it was like a sort of scene out of, uh, out of uh, Apocalypse Now. And we flicked the TV in the waiting room onto MTV. And it was a sort of Kylie video or something like that. And instant calm broke out as these guys just sat transfixed by MTV for the next three hours. So perfect. I think, uh, I think they enjoyed it almost more than we did. Now, you joined the army after 9-11, and therefore you knew it was going to be more dangerous than it normally had, previously had been. Why did you join? There's a whole bundle of reasons. I, I genuinely don't think I would have joined if it hadn't been for that prospect. I, I think the idea of joining an organisation like the Army not being busy wouldn't have appealed. I think I, I, sort of, I grew up in the, in the 90s with this background of, kind of liberal interventionism, reading things like uh, Shake Hands with the Devil, which was Romeo Dallaire's horrific book about 
being in Rwanda during the genocide there, um, my father, who's in the forces, went back and forth to the Balkans and would see these terrible things, have these terrible stories. But there was this kind of sense that you could do something to improve it. And I think um, September the 11th and the subsequent war on terror, although uh, arguably quite misguided in its application and deeply flawed in its strategy, I think it, it had some of that sense of kind of liberal hope. And that was something I felt from the comfort and ease of university that you almost had a sort of responsibility to be a part of in some way. And if that took you out of your comfort zone, then perhaps that was a necessary part of growing up. One of the things that struck me when reading it is, is the point you make that, that the young soldiers have probably seen more action than previous generations have ever seen, and that you're trained initially by, by men who learnt in Northern Ireland or the Falklands, whose experience may not be applicable. Can you talk about that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of torn between two ways. Part of me uh, recognises the... Um, kind of huge work that was done in Northern Ireland by that generation and in the Falklands, and they had a torrid time. And in certain years in Northern Ireland, we lost more soldiers than we're losing in a year sorry, in Afghanistan or Iraq. So it's important to bear that in mind. But I think it's the, the nature of the fighting, the ferocity, um, the uh, kind of close-quarter infantry combat that is now being seen that hadn't been seen since the Falklands, and arguably before that since maybe Aden and Korea. And what I found is I joined an army where... The vast majority of people, as you say, hadn't fired their weapon. They'd been to very difficult places, they'd done difficult jobs, but they hadn't fired their weapon. They'd never looked down the rifle sights at the enemy trying to shoot them and shot them first. And culturally, that's a very significant thing, because if you're in an organization where that is the, you know, that's the kind of pinnacle of, of what you're trained to do, and many people haven't done that, that becomes quite a driving force. So I was, I was part of this generation that's done that, in huge numbers um, and I, I think we're going to see an interesting few years where the kind of the top brass lack some of that experience and the guys beneath them who sort of ought to know their place are going to be the ones saying well hang on that doesn't necessarily work or that's not how we did it when we did it for real rather than from the training manual so I think um, there's a balance between recognizing that but also this this realization that a lot of my generation have had of those kind of most extremes. So this is a new generation going to war, and one of the things that makes this generation different, which you bring out in the book, is, is you've grown up with iPods, with mobiles, with digital video cameras, and yeah. God knows what. And I, I get the impression that you went to Afghanistan with more leisure equipment than <laughs> most people keep in, in the average home. You know, how do you go about this? Are you allowed to take everything? And the, what are the things that are considered... Necessity. Well, you, I mean, it, it's, it's slightly disingenuous because uh, some of the kit uh, is required. You have to take a digital camera out with you for evidence gathering. You know, if you, if you take a, a prisoner of war or if you see something that needs to be reported, then obviously that has to be documented. And we do fight a, a digital war these days, and our communications devices are digital. So a commander like I was would have essentially a laptop terminal. That would be a crucial part of his communications equipment. But because we're all reasonably tech-savvy, we all know how to get out of the system so we can play solitaire for hours on end when we're on stag. Um, on stag? I, on stag, on, uh, yeah, when you're on your sort of shift of guard duty, sort of the midnight till two in the morning shift, trying to stay awake listening in on the radio for any urgent communications. I was struck by this thing. I mean, I, I do think we are the MTV generation. I was born in 1982, the first year that MTV broadcast. And I think our 
experiences are reference points, as I've tried to kind of get at through the book. They are pop cultural reference points. They are Vietnam War films. They're the music of those Vietnam War films. And they're the music that we listen to as a generation ourselves. And I've, I had a generation of soldiers whose kind of leisure time would, would be clubbing, probably in a way that previous generations that wouldn't be the case. And I'm, I'm struck, and I have been even more so since coming back to London. One of the one of the things I struggled with in the book is it's so difficult to describe the intensity and the kind of tumult of sensory experience of a battle. It's, it's, not, it's like nothing you have a reference point for. And perhaps one of the reasons why we turn to films or why I turn to films is that's how you can understand it. Since coming back to London, the closest thing I think there is to that complete immersion in experience is being in a, a, a kind of proper dance nightclub. And I don't think it's an accident that most of my soldiers would have done that for leisure. They were coming back for their two weeks R&R &R and going to things like Creamfields. And there's a similarity, the kind of the noise, the smoke, the light, the everything going on, and still being able to find a, a clarity through that. That is what we had to do in a battle. So I was very taken by that kind of similarity between the two. Everybody takes an iPod with them. Yeah. How does an iPod behave in Iraq and Afghanistan? Do you get sand in it? I mean, does it still function? Everybody gets frustrated give, if their iPod. I mean, I'll right. give credit to credit to Apple. I, uh, the iPod did pretty well. I think the six months in the, in the desert, uh, an iPod Nano did fine. I had one in the jungle for five weeks. It did pretty well then. Though I kind of wrapped it up in waterproofing. Um, speaking to the older soldiers. The old Walkmans didn't used to do so well, but the, the waterproofing ones, that that was a very kind of popular thing. Um, the laptops are the ones that suffer. Um, they, they don't like the desert. So it was all very well taking an iPod, but you had to have all your music on it. You, you didn't want to be the poor guy who thought he'd keep all his music on his laptop, download playlists as and when he needed them, and then suddenly the laptop dies in 55-degree heat. Um, but I think it comes back to what we were saying earlier about having a personal space. When there is no privacy, so for example in Afghanistan, if we were in camp, which we were very infrequently, um, we were in 35-man tin huts. Um, and the privacy then becomes it retreating into your own space. And I think if you want to you know, when uh, I was very fortunate in a way that I, I never lost one of the soldiers under my command, but I, I did have a couple injured, and that was a very hard thing to cope with. Um, and I would just have to put an iPod on and just go for a walk okay, and then a smoke, but just to kind of cope with that because you don't want to be interacting with other people. And it's a very effective shorthand. You know, if you'd walk past someone's bed and they were just there, zoned out, it's like a thousand yard stare with a couple of iPod earphones in, you'd know that they didn't necessarily want to be interrupted. So it, 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 it provided an important function, I think. You talk a lot about how you were inspired in your training. Uh, by the idea of, of taking part in some triumphant highlights video of your, um, of your achievements. And you talk about this being part of army life nowadays, that everybody knows how to cut together their own kind of promo video. Yeah. You talk about the, uh, the Prince of Wales Regiment video. Tell us about that. Yeah, we, I mean, this was 2004, so this is when I was undergoing my training. And at the start of the... the horribly misnamed War on Terror, the Americans put out a couple of um, propaganda videos um, to very, very heavy rock and metal. Um, and they were basically they were promotional montages of kind of explosions and what we would call in the army firepower demonstrations. But they were quite kind of amusing. Um, and then the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment had this torrid time in 2004 up in Alamara in southern Iraq um, and really had fought 
uh, as fiercely as had been done in the Iraq War. And, of course, at that stage, we weren't in Helmand, so Afghanistan wasn't like it was now. And this was really the cutting edge. And they made this tour video, and they, cut, they set it to Lost Prophets' Last Train, which was this kind of great, poignant track with enough kind of um, action in it, but also this kind of uh, melodic, thoughtful quality, because they, they, they lost one of their guys, and it was really a tribute to him. And it was a compilation of photos that were taken and bits of camera footage from mobile phones and digital cameras. And it, it just swept the board. Everywhere you went, Sandhurst, Infantry Battle School in Brecon, whether you were up at Catterick, you're one of the young guys who wasn't going through officer training, but you were going through infantry training. I doubt there's someone in the army who hasn't seen this video. And it was the kind of the next level. You know, as part of our training, we'd watch things like Saving Private Ryan and Black Hawk Down, which are pretty accurate representations because it helps to try and get a feel. But this was the next level. These were real guys who you might or might not know. And, of course, everybody then followed suit, and the challenge was finding the most poignant music or the most appropriate music. Um, so I think the following tour in Iraq, the Staffordshire Regiment, set one to uh, one of the tracks from Gladiator. You know, it's kind of re perfect, um, sort of warry but poignant stuff. And then they grew bigger and bigger, and so it would be like, what would be on your playlist? And I think it, um, it became a way of, of thinking how you would relate things back. Because I think one of the big challenges for a soldier overseas doing some of the stuff that soldiers are doing now is how are you going to how are you going to communicate that to your girlfriend your sort of family your friends and we're all sort of quite disingenuous with our, our our mothers or whatever i got in huge trouble because we had a, a documentary team following us and when my mum saw it on panorama obviously every time i've been on the phone to her i've been like no it's fine there's a bit of fighting but it's nowhere near us and then she saw this horrific documentary she's like how dare you you told me so I think it kind of helps, rather than having to constantly explain, uh, I, I, the, the one that was made for my unit by the boys and, and when we sort of had a bit of downtime when we got back. And I just said to sort of 10 of my closest, mostly male friends, they said, yeah, what was it like, what was it like? I said, right, we'll, we'll get all the beers in and then you can just come around and watch this on the laptop and get a feel. And, um, and it's a way of processing, I think. But you're also talking about... Uh Seeing you're taking war films with you to war, like Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers and so forth, yeah. uh, and this is your your opportunity to see how the real thing matched mm. in any way the Hollywood version. Yeah. You, you mentioned one, I think uh, Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. incident with a yeah in um, in what was it in uh, Blood Diamonds, um, which became this sort of Blood Diamond. I guess not really a war film, but. This, there's this, this wonderful line you got DiCaprio doing his kind of Afrikaans accent, TIA, this is Africa. And obviously TIA for us just became this is Afghanistan. Um, but there, it was probably the worst possible film to go and see with your girlfriend three days before you go away to war, but we didn't really, weren't really thinking about it. And there's a scene where someone fires an RPG at them down a street. And he well, sort of does RPG this, is a... Um, a rocket-propelled grenade, essentially. Um, uh, uses an sort of anti-tank weapon, pretty nasty bit of kit. And he sort of does this barrel roll out of the way as you see this thing coming towards them, and you just think that's classic Hollywood shtick. And um, and it, as it turned out, it, it wasn't. Sort of a few months later, I sort of had a similar experience and, and had this distinct memory of um, of just seeing this thing sort of spiraling towards you and thinking this is not a great situation to be in, and throwing yourself in a ditch. And um, there was, I still, I'm I'm still not sure whether some of those films were brilliantly uh, directed and shot. Uh, things like Platoon and uh, Hamburger Hill and Full Metal Jacket, you know, these classics of, of the Vietnam War, all 
whether they were amazingly accurate or whether we made them accurate because we sort of lived them out ourselves. There was a moment of calm when we'd taken a, a dam that was a sort of a strategic objective and we'd been fighting all day pretty much to take this and then this beautiful sunset started and I can't emphasize how, how beautiful Afghanistan is. It's a breathtaking country and the sun setting over this valley and we'd sort of we'd made, made the ground safe and the guys were absolutely uh, threaders, you know, tired, sweaty, fighting for pretty much two days on the go and there's this canal, so, you know, sir, can we you know, go for a quick swim? Of course, sentries posted, strip off. And it was suddenly that moment from uh, Hamburger Hill where they're all washing and Otis Redding is playing on, on the stereo. And, of course, somebody's got an iPod, so you're going to put on Otis Redding. And then we're all walking around in bandanas with dog tags. And you're thinking, are we doing this because this is what war is like? Or are we doing it because we saw the film? What came first? You know, was the film brilliant? Or are we just reenacting the film? And I think it's a bit of give and take because you're so far out of your comfort zone that you have no... There's no rule book. You don't know how to behave, so you sort of take your cues from other stuff. We didn't, fortunately, go full-out apocalypse now. There was no one kind of cutting heads off in, in the bottom of a river. But I think it does help you to, to kind of feel your way around what is a very strange situation to be in. Let's talk about music. When any of us go, you know, walking or climbing a mountain or whatever, <laughs> music takes on a peculiar quality. But you're in Helmand province, you know, which is a pretty terrifying place to be. What, what, what happens to music in your I head think, I think, in those circumstances? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's interesting you say kind of climbing a mountain because I think it's even before you get to Helmand Province. You know, part of some of the uh, physical tests that you have to do when you're joining the army, I mean, there's a famous kind of gruelling one over the mountains in Wales. My girlfriend made a, a, an MP3 list for me called Climb Every Mountain to try and get me over this 72-hour race. We realized that if you sort of sung or hummed Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell, it was about 10 minutes long. So if you did it six times in a row, at least you were an hour towards the end. So, <laughs> so you, you got, can do the whole a, of Bat Out of Hell, can you? I could do then at the time. I don't know <laughs> if I can still remember all the words. But, but once you're out there, it's... It, 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 is, it is huge, I think. BFBS, British Forces Broadcasting Services Radio, which you can sort of pick up in most of the places, is constantly on. And there would be this uh, contrast between that would be a kind of Radio 2 meets Radio 1. You know, it was for pop, it was mainstream. This moment that we mentioned in the book when we took over a base from another unit and one of the sentries bored in the Sanger position, the kind of defended apex, had carved into the wood. Um, they tried to make me go to Sangin. and I said, no, no, no. It's sort of <laughs> wonderful. It's 2007 and Amy Winehouse was everywhere. Um, but then our own music as well, you know, sort of those kind of quieter moments, those moments of introspection, I think it becomes a huge um, kind of aid to dealing with stuff. And it also becomes a link to back home. I mean, for me, music is always redolent of, of something, whether it was like a party or where you first heard it. So, you know, I was university 2000 to 2003, so I still can't hear something like Top Loader dancing in the moonlight without thinking of kind of bad university nightclubs, but it's kind of got a fun feel to it. Um, and I think there was a lot of that, you know, this, you take your downtime. Um, you don't sleep a lot when you're at uh, war. You might get kind of quite exhausted and then zonk out, but on a normal routine... You'd be lucky to get more than four hours sleep in one burst, and then you'd be woken up and something else or something else. So you spend quite a lot of time maybe just lying on your back, staring up at, uh, up at the stars. And I think to, ha to have music to kind of chill out to in, in those moments is also quite important as well. So um, the variety of stuff, you know, the, the kind of up-tempo, as I say, kind of maybe 
quite dancey, sort of almost euphoric trance that would be appropriate in a contact battle. And then you'd compare that to um, I listen to a lot of Pink Floyd in the, that kind of downtime because it's got that kind of quality. Um, and then sometimes, obviously, with an iPod and a shuffle function, it would get quite mischievous. And so, as I mentioned in the book, we had this wonderful moment where for about the fifth day in a row, we got ambushed and someone said, right, whack on the, the stereo. And instead of being um, Armin van Helden or whatever it was we were expecting, it was Dolly Parton's nine to five. And suddenly this was the most appropriate thing because this was our kind of office existence. And we're all giggling at this while firing off machine guns. Extraordinary kind of image. Somebody's written a book, I think, recently about uh, what American troops listening mm. to. And apparently Slayer is a favourite. It's so unimaginative. <laughs> anything else, I just... I mean, I, I'm, I'm very... Uh, I, even within the armed forces, I, I spend a lot of time working with the Americans. I tend to be very pro-American. I think they do a better job than our media give them credit for. And I think, more fundamentally, we, we wouldn't be able to do anything that we do without them. Um, they're such a big army that we tend to let the kind of rotten apples in the barrel colour it. But there was this thing where I really expected to be able to kind of reach out a bit more. And I, I lived in New York before I joined the army and loved America as this kind of cultural centre. It felt to me like London must have felt like 100 years ago, New York's where everything was coming from. And so I was really surprised when I was working with these guys because I had this idea that in Iraq the most appropriate music we could be listening to was kind of hip-hop, gangster rap. You know, we were cruising around Basra, might as well have been in kind of Humvees or almost sort of drive-by shootings. It was sort of seemed to be kind of Buster Rhymes was perfect for this. And so I thought the Americans would be way ahead of us, but no, they are well and truly, firmly still in, the kind of in that mid-80s, it's all very um, heavy. It's, it's a lot of metal. And I don't know whether that's partly the kind of culture of the army or the fact that they, have, they recruit from certain areas and it's not such a, a kind of cosmopolitan organisation, perhaps as the British army, which doesn't really have a geographical basis. But it, it struck me as well that kind of, um, there wasn't quite such a same diversity. We come back to the reading matter. You know, they were sort of very much on certain things. Um, so we tried to kind of introduce a few curveballs and we'd say, oh, maybe we should listen to a bit of this, listen to a bit of that, but they were firmly with the, with the metal. So. You talk about coming back home on leave and, and being finding it impossible to get Afghanistan out of your system, but nonetheless you left the army. Was writing the book an important part of the decompression process? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, it was very therapeutic to get these kind of memories out and down onto the page. Um, I mean, I still I, I look at the news this morning, for example, and there's, I think there's always a part of you that misses it. I think um, that side of being in the army, going away, working with soldiers in those extreme conditions, that was what I, I loved. I think my reasons for leaving the army were probably more based on kind of the other side of army life, which is a bit more mundane and can be more kind of troublesome. Um, so part of me, I think, will, will always miss that. But there was also a recognition, and again, comes all the way back to what you were mentioning right at the start, that this kind of, is there a similarity between this and, and touring? Well, I think you probably recognise that that's a very artificial lifestyle, and it has its highs and its lows, but it's, it's not the real world. And if you don't get out of it at some point, then you can get trapped into it. And I think I sort of thought perhaps I'd reached that point where I was finding it so difficult to enjoy what should have been really enjoyable and, and the kind of the normal London life that it was potentially quite dangerous to stay in and get further and further. I sort of described it in the book as like this kind of spinning wheel that gets faster and faster and do you jump off or not? And if you jump off, then obviously you're going to get a bit bruised. But the longer you leave it, the worse the jump off's going to be. So I 
decided to take that plunge, but who knows, in two years' time, I might be so bored, I'll just join the army. Now, in the last week, as you say, there's been a number of deaths yeah. on the front pages. And a uh, senior army officer yesterday was on the news saying, well, the British public now get it, I think was the, the phrase. Do you think that's true? And, do you, and what do you think they ought to get? I think, uh, I think they, they get it. I think they get the hardship of the fighting. I think they get the extremity that people are going through. I, I don't think they ever didn't get it. I think there's a slight trick being played here where... Um, it's a slightly political game. I, you think two weeks ago we had this uh, inaugural Armed Forces Day, and the politicians were saying, oh, this is you know, so the British public can support the army. I never felt the British public didn't support the army. I think the army never felt the British public didn't support them. I think they felt the politicians didn't support them, and it's easier and cheaper for a politician to stand there on Armed Forces Day than it is for him to put his money where his mouth is and give you new kit and equipment. So I think there's a sort of double game being played here. But again, one of the main reasons why I wrote the book is I did think this... Um, gulf of understanding was opening up where these days very few people have relatives who've been in the army or um, have been in the army themselves and I wanted to make the point that the guy three down from you in the bar might be a soldier and this might be what he's gone through and and that's something that I think does need to be recognised and is being recognised ever more because the casualties, the, the sort of tragic deaths are the ones that make the headlines. But the guys come back with no visible scars. You know, for every one person that dies, there's going to be hundreds coming back who've been through the same stuff and who've lost that friend. And it's, it is a difficult adjustment for them. And that does, that's something that needs to be dealt with sensitively. I've got a friend whose son is out there at the moment. And uh, should I lend her the book? Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, th- I, I think uh, I, I've got a couple of comments from people who are thinking of joining the army who've said... Um, thank you for this. Um, I'm now going into it with open eyes, but it hasn't put me off. I think overall, I hope it's, it's a positive book. It's, it doesn't pull any punches. And I have this belief that if you show warts and all, it's a more credible picture. I think that the public these days are so sophisticated now that if you just give them positive spin, they won't believe it. If you give them an honest picture that say, look, it, this is far from perfect, and yes, there are idiots sometimes, but by and large, this is an organisation of good people working really hard to do a difficult job, then I think they respond to that. Uh, we haven't seen many people going out to entertain the troops, certainly not to Afghanistan. If that could ever happen, who do you think would be most popular amongst the <sighs> British soldiery? Girls and hounds, get them out there, <laughs> straight away. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. <laughs>